OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Welcome to the Wall Street Journal's Free Expression Podcast. I'm Paul Gigo, editor of the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm filling in for Jerry Baker, who's the usual host of Free Expression, because today Jerry is on the other side of the microphone. I'm interviewing Jerry about his new book, American Breakdown, Why We No Longer Trust Our Leaders and Institutions and How We Can Rebuild Confidence. Jerry, welcome. Thank you very much indeed for having me, Paul. Congratulations on the book. You're very kind of thank you for all your uh, forbearance and help in helping me get it done. First, let me ask you why you decided to write this book and why the decline of trust in institutions matters. Like you, Paul, I've been a journalist for several decades, and most of that time here in the United States. I've been here, journalist in the US, for almost 30 years. And as a reporter, as a writer, as an editor, you don't need a particularly uh, brilliant qualities of perception to realize that people's trust in the media has declined dramatically. Now, I think here at the Wall Street Journal, we've managed to essentially maintain high levels of trust with readers. But you look across the media landscape, as I have over the last 25, 30 years, and all of these major media institutions that people, broadly speaking, we always knew that nothing was ever perfect. And some media organizations had particular biases. But by and large, 30, 40 years ago, these institutions were broadly trusted to at least at least that their sense that their objective was to try and get to the truth and tell the story. But your book really isn't just about the media. It's about many institutions. Yeah, exactly. So that's how it started out. I thought, I don't want to be write yet another book about the media, but I looked at these numbers. And then as it turns out, of course, the Gallup organization and other organizations have been tracking Americans' trust in major institutions, the media being one of them, but in Gallup's case, across 16 institutions, government, law enforcement, big business, science and technology, small business, the military, you know, pretty well all the major institutions that make up American society. And in almost all of those cases, this is what then struck me as I went through the data, in almost all of those cases over the last 30 years or so, trust has not just declined. I mean, we're talking about, we're not talking, you know, a few percentage points. Trust in many cases has fallen by more than half. The media is the extreme case, but education, higher education, law enforcement, science and technology, big business. And so I thought, you know, I wanted to get to the bottom of this, to try and understand what was going on, understand the particular causes of the collapse in trust in each of those institutions, but also to see if there was a broader explanation for this widespread loss of trust. And why does trust matter was your second question. Societies can't function without trust. If we don't trust each other... Especially democracies. Perfect example is an election, right? If you don't trust the outcome of an election, a very relevant and topical issue that I know grips many Americans right now, then you can't trust the government because you don't think the government was legitimately elected. And therefore, that government has no legitimacy. And that leads to all kinds of terrible things. So trust is absolutely essential. It trust is the grease in many ways of society. It allows you to function without having coercion right. because uh, it's a, like an economic transaction. Right. But then it's spread out across the entire society where you make a handshake with somebody, not only in a contractual sense, but just saying, I trust the fact that my pastor is telling me the truth. Yeah, yeah. I trust the fact yeah. that that story is true. Yeah, because we can't verify everything right. we see or are told, as you say, by a contractor, by a news organization, by the government. So we have to place some trust in them because we can't actually verify it ourselves. Well, let's talk about the, the home team here, the media first. You brought it up first. I've looked at the polls and the trust in the media is really down even below Congress. Hmm. 
which is really saying something. Yeah. It's down there so low that it's what John McCain used to call uh, you know, friends and family. <laughs> <laughs> What's gone wrong in the media? So first of all, Americans have discovered that the media has not been telling them the truth. Lots of the media have not been telling them the truth. We're not naive, Paul. You and I have both been around long enough, and most of our listeners have too. Again, nobody thought that the media back in the 1970s and 80s was a sort of pure, you know, platonic ideal of, you know, truth pursuit. We always knew that there was a general bias in the media and it tended to lean in one particular direction towards the left. But in particularly the last two decades, it's almost as though the pretense of objectivity, which they may have at least had, or at least the, at least the, you know, the ideal goal of objectivity has just been abandoned. Or fundamental completely. fairness. Exactly. And look, you know, again, you've been around even longer than I have in this business. I edited the journal, the news side of the journal for five or six years. That was a particularly tumultuous period. It was the period of Trump's election and the Trump term. And what was so obvious to me then was the way in which, and again, listeners to this podcast, readers of your editorials, readers of my columns, know we're no lovers of Donald Trump. We're well aware of Donald Trump's flaws. But the way in which the media covered Trump right from the beginning and the sort of just the shameless willingness to publicize and distribute and amplify every single story about Trump, many of which turned out to be false, including the Russia collusion ones, of course. That to me was a kind of a turning point. It really demonstrated, you know, okay, the mask is off. The media is really absolutely just determined to pursue a particular set of objectives. I think the reason you asked, the reason there are lots of reasons. I do think, and I talk about this in the book, I do think the primary reason is over the last, particularly over the last generation or so, we've seen a change in the type of people who go into journalism. You know, when you and I started out, people wanted to go into journalism. They genuinely wanted to go into journalism because they wanted to find things out. They wanted to actually hold organizations accountable, whoever they were. These days, the people in the la- who go into journalism in the last 20 years are basically ideologues. They no longer th- want to find out the truth. They think they know the truth and it's their job to instruct people on what the truth is. And so those are, if you're saying the last 20 years, that's not who's running these institutions, Jerry. The people who are running these institutions are from our generation. So are you suggesting that, in fact, the inmates are running the asylum, <laughs> the millennials are running the bosses? There's some truth to that. And we've seen that in you know several institutions. Our friends at uh, our newspaper across town, the New York Times, I think we've seen a couple of episodes in the last few years where it's absolutely clear that's what's happening. And I do also think that the, the generation that kind of runs these institutions, even if they're not of that modern sort of ideologically driven, hugely ideologically driven sort, again, they broadly lean in the same direction. And I think they have come to see their role rather differently from perhaps when they started out, that they're their role is to help facilitate the advance of that ideological agenda. And I think therefore have not, some have to be fair. And by the way, you know, in some organizations, there has been resistance to this sort of tidal wave of untrustworthy, ideologically driven biased journalism. But for the most part, they've kind of gone along. Let's talk about big business, which you devote a chapter to in the book. Companies that are, in many ways, marquee names. People use their products every day, so they clearly have some trust in the products, the services that these companies sell. But yet you say the big business overall is mistrusted by tens of millions of Americans. What do you mean? Yeah, it's an important distinction. Yeah, a company like Disney, which is you know very much in the news, right? The Walt Disney Company. Yeah, people still 
hundreds of millions of people watch the theme park, go to the theme parks, watch the movies, buy the merchandise, all of that is absolutely true because that part of what Disney does still has utility for people. But they've come to view, and again, I'm citing polling evidence here and survey evidence, they've come to view so many of these companies, not by any means all of them, as basically pursuing an agenda. Now, some of it is an economic agenda, which I think a lot of people have come to be distrustful of, which was globalization. And a lot of Americans have seen these big companies pursue opportunities abroad. They particularly see them go to a place like China, where they flocked to China in the... I tell a story, an anecdote in my book about state dinner that I went to when Barack Obama was president, where he with for the first Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, and he invited all of these leaders of all these very familiar household name leaders, CEOs, and they all went up to Xi Jinping and begged him to do, you know, in the most craven and embarrassing it's way, begged him to do things. Uh, anecdote. I pinned it here in page 55 right. of my book because oh, it's just a remarkable episode. It's so humiliating yeah. on the part of these, it is. Uh, the Disney CEO, the Meta CEO. Yep. Uh, Tim Cook of Apple. Yeah. Amazing. You know, again, we've seen that and just we've seen that with Apple in just in the last year. They have gone to China and basically laid down and said, you know, we'll do anything you want in order to make money. Now that suggests to a lot of Americans, I think, that they don't put the interests of Americans first and they don't even put the interests of American values first. They put their own profits and their own interests, financial interests first. And then the second big phenomenon, which we're very familiar with, is the phenomenon of the woke corporation. And by the way, it's often the same corporations touting and propagating, um, you know, ideas of inclusion and diversity and equity here in the United States and lambasting the United States for its terrible record, supposedly, over racial discrimination. While they, the same people, go to China, one of the most repressive regimes on earth and beg the China, laud the Chinese for all their achievements and beg them to allow them to do business there. But this phenomenon of the woke corporation is a serious one. And, and back to your original point, I think it's a good one. People are still buying the products of these corporations, although we could take Bud Light as an example of where there is, too far, there's yes. been a kind of pop- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There's a, there is a popular revolt. I mean, I hope we're not going to be in the situation where you and I, we've talked about this in the past and you've written extensively about this, but really I think most Americans think companies should focus on primarily what's good for their shareholders because that, after all, is the way companies achieve economic success and efficiency. actually the law in Delaware. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right. Exactly. Good, good point. They should focus on, on their shareholders and they should focus on producing goods and services that will make them successful companies. The more they indulge in this ideological posturing, which I think, frankly, a lot of it is, the more they're alienating people. The Bud Light cases is a case in point. We don't want a situation where we're going to have, you know, conservative toothpaste versus progressive toothpaste. It's not in the interest of the country to do that. It will be further divisive. So I think it's one of the reasons why people have come to distrust big business in such numbers. The consequences for business and business interests of this change and this increase in distrust can be profound because you already have the left wing of the uh, the Democratic Party, which doesn't like corporations because they're corporations and profit-making entities. But you always had a Republican Party and a conservative movement that was free market enough to support capitalism, yeah. uh, notwithstanding some of its sins and excesses, but in general, support capitalism. And now that wing of the party is hostile to business. You could end up with uh, significant damage to a free market economy. You could. And I think, again, you are seeing that. I think it's still limited. And, you know, it's so hard to pick out these strands in sort of real trends in development of conservative thought from just the the, the noise that surrounds Donald Trump and our general political context. But yeah, there are those. 
who are essentially sounding very, very similar to socialists or to progressives and the Bernie Sanders of the world and the Elizabeth Warren saying capitalism has failed. I mean, capitalism plainly has not failed. Capitalism always needs vigilance and it may need reform. But the idea, and I worry about this a lot when I see this in this country and actually the country where I was born in the UK too, which has a notionally conservative government, but it's basically whether it's in terms of environmental policy, whether it's in terms of its regulations, if this is the future of conservatism, it's indistinguishable from from the ideas that progressives hold. And as you say, if nobody's going to stand up for the principles of capitalism, and, for, and let's be honest, people know this, that capitalism has been the most successful economic system in the history of humanity in millions of years. And it's lifted more people out of poverty and created more opportunities and wealth for people in the last hundred years than has literally been created in the previous you know, several hundred thousand years. So the idea that we could be abandoning that just right now, because there are undoubtedly concerns about some of maybe some of the impact that capitalism has, I think is, yeah, is, is a dangerous, dangerous phenomenon. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll have more with uh, Jerry Baker on his new book, American Breakdown, when we come back. Apollo is working to ensure a bright, bold future, financing solutions to some of the most complex challenges the world is facing. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo, editor of the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm filling in for Jerry here on the Free Expression podcast, and we're talking to Jerry Baker, the former editor-in-chief of the uh, Wall Street Journal, who has written a book called American Breakdown. The government gets another chapter. You could probably write a whole book on the yeah. distrust of government. This has been going on a long time, of course, yeah. uh, because of the failures of government to do much. The jokes about the post office and the DMV are hardy perennials in American politics. But now it's much broader than, than that. What do you think the root of it is? Is it the, the fact that government tries to do so much now? Yeah. It's in everything. Yep. That it actually doesn't do the things we really need it to do, like public safety, yeah. very well. <laughs> and is that the root of the problem? Because, and I ask that because the last time, if you look at those Gallup surveys, when government was actually at the peak of its, uh, the public esteem, was when that great skeptic of government, Ronald Reagan, right, exactly, <laughs> was in exactly, office yeah. Yeah. in the 1980s. Because he was actually succeeding. Yeah. yeah, I think it's absolutely right. Again, and I talk about that in the book, that the larger government gets, the more expansive and ambitious it gets. You know, as you say, we're all familiar with our own direct experiences of the bureaucracy and how it works. That breeds distrust, and I'm absolutely certain that's been a factor. Look, the, and, and I, I talk about this a bit in, in the chapter on government. The last 20 years have not been, whatever one thinks about this country, have not been a record of great success. Foreign policy, wars, again, we can argue about the virtues and the merits of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. But, you know, their most ferocious advocates would not describe them as enormous successes in the way they say the first Iraq war was, or most obviously the second world war was, or the first world war. So foreign policy has been to put it mildly, has been disappointing, also matched at the same time by the rise of this huge strategic rival to us now in China the last 20 years, making Americans feel much more insecure than I think they felt 20 years ago. And I think 
part of that comes down to government. The economic performance has not been great either. I mean, we've had, you know, again, we've had this big expansion of government. We've had this big expansion of the debt and we've had relatively poor economic performance. Productivity has been relatively low over the last 20 years. Now, people say, well, unemployment's great and unemployment's low and, you know, well, we've had this surge in inflation, but broadly speaking, the economy is in reasonable health. What it isn't, if you take a longer term view, and again, you know, you and I probably agree on this, the failure to enable people to keep more of their income, the kind of the expansion of government we saw under presidents of both parties, I should say, Bush, Obama, and to some extent, Trump all kind of expanded both the deficit and the size of the government. That has been economically negative for the country. And I think people look at that when the country is not performing as well economically and, you know, real wages have been largely stagnant for most of the last 20 years. People understandably say, well, you know, they look at the government, you're running the country, you know, you failed. Why should we trust you? What about basic competence or quality of our elected officials. I've been covering politics for more than 40 years, seen an awful lot of people from presidents down to apparatchiks. And I would say that as a general matter, this is an opinion, I can't prove it, but as a general proposition, the quality of people we elect to Congress in particular is much lower than it used to be. They're not as competent. They're not as knowledgeable. They don't know very much, uh, an awful lot of them. And they don't know very much about things that happened even 10 years ago, much less about the Constitution and its limits and all of that. And I would say many of them are performance artists. And I would say, you know, AOC on the Democratic side, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Matt Gaetz, the Republican side. I know those are extreme versions of what I'm describing, but there's a lot more of those than there used to be. 100% agree. I think that's partly a reflection of the quality of the people involved. And one of the, I've written about this a little bit in the book, but I've also written columns about this, that the generation that made sacrifices, genuine sacrifices in wars, particularly Second World War, Korean War, Vietnam War, we've largely lost those now from public life. And those were, you know, if you people think of quality people, you may not agree with everything he said and did, but people like John McCain, that generation of people with that background, that record of service and sacrifice, we have so few of those people around. And we have a few, to be fair, there's a few members of Congress. And in fact, I think it's quite striking that some of the most distinguished members of Congress are veterans of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, people I'm, you know, particularly admire. But I think there has been a broad loss of quality there. And then the other thing, Paul, is, again, you, you say this exactly with AOC and Matt Gates and others, is kind of the incentive structure, right? So back in the even as recently as the 80s and maybe the 90s, members of Congress, their incentive structure was aligned towards getting things done. They wanted to get legislation passed. And again, you and I would, I think, pretty well much have the same view of someone like a Ted Kennedy in terms of his politics and his ideology and indeed even his character. But Kennedy wanted to get, primarily wanted to get things done and succeeded in getting things done, reaching across the aisle in the Senate. Or members of Congress, people, you know, go back to people like Tip O'Neill. They actually wanted to achieve things. They wanted to move the country forward. Today, exactly as you describe it, it's about performance. There's no incentive to get things done. For Matt Gates and AOC, their idea of success is as a tweet or an X post, as we should say these days, that gets a million hits or appearing on MSNBC or Fox News at night. That's the pinnacle of their achievement. There's neither the quality of the people involved, the type of people who are going into politics, nor, frankly, in our kind of social media, kind of short-term fixated victim culture, performative world, nor are the incentives actually there to get people who really want to get things done. A lot of bad news in this conversation, but uh, are there institutions that are actually trusted and what are they? The only two institutions that Gallup has been polling consistently for 15 years or so, where a majority of people express trust in them and have not seen a significant decline, are the military and small business. 
And the military in the last few years has seen a decline. And I think, frankly, that's kind of a small part of the same phenomenon we've been talking about with the sort of increased wokeness and some of the things that some of the military leaders have unfortunately said and been associated with in the last few years. But I think the military and big business are instructive in their own different ways and in helpful ways. The military, because it still represents service. It still represents just sort of the thing we've been talking about. People go into the military for all kinds of reasons, but primarily they're motivated by a sense of service to their country and a sense of sacrifice to their country. And you know, it's striking that people still trust people who do that because they think that is a valuable thing to do. It reflects something about the way they think about their country because they admire people who put their lives on their line for their country. And I think that's an important lesson. Small business but the opposite end, if you like, is actually is the only institution that's seen trust increased in the last 20 years. I think that's really interesting because I think it does point also to a lot to part of the, one of the phenomena we've seen that has contributed to the rise in, in distrust, which is sort of scale and remoteness of institutions. I do think there's been a sense in this country and indeed around the world in the last 20 years or so that with the enormous scale of companies, of social media, of technology, of the information technology that we have, they become very remote from people. But people don't feel that they're accountable. They don't feel that they have any sense of ownership of them. Small businesses, you go to, you know, you still, people still, there aren't, you know, sadly many of them have been dying, but people still like to go to the local, down the height to the main street or down to the local mall, and they still trust the guy who repairs their shoes or cuts their hair or serves them dinner on a Thursday night. That's important, I think. And I think that is Again, part of getting back to a world in which we trust our leaders is changing the leaders of all of these institutions so that we have people. Yeah, we're not going to we're not going to get rid of broad-based corporate companies. Now, I'll give you an illustration just from my own life. My father was a shopkeeper. He was mm. he was a pharmacist who owned his own drugstore right. for thirty years. Right. But the chains ultimately, I mean, he was going to retire anyway. But the chains basically drove him out of business. Yeah, yeah. So I started as a kid. I delivered prescriptions to mm. people. You know, that was part of. The service yeah. of his small business. The yeah. chains don't do that. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> right. So, so you know, but we're not going to change that economy because those chains brought in lower prices, yeah. enormous efficiencies, yeah. and people value. Them. Yeah, I think, and it's the paradox of efficiency. Look, to take technology as the perfect example, right? I mean, Amazon has transformed the way in which we buy goods and even services to some extent now too. You know, I don't know about you, but I use Amazon multiple times a week or any of these delivery, you know, with the, the use of an app, any of these delivery platforms, it's just so easy to do the ease of it. But at the same time, in a paradoxical way, it is breeding distrust. The personalization is gone. You sure your father had customers, you know, come in and be able to actually discuss concerns and issues that they had with particular drugs or whatever it was. That's gone. You're right. We're not going to get back to that, but we do have to find a way, I think, to bring the virtues of that system where people had direct communication and direct, again, as I say, kind of ownership of these businesses that were supplying them. We have to bring that back while maintaining the efficiency of scale that we've clearly achieved. You mentioned changing the leaders, because I want to get into this before we close. Just, all right, what do we do about about this? And you have a passage in your book, page 218, which says, uh, the most effective way to restore some of the lost trust in government and politics would be to raise the quality of political discourse and leadership. Politics needs to focus more on competence and honesty than on partisan identity. Here, here, on the other hand, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, that, that's not in the most persuasive of prescriptions section, <laughs> section of the book. Now, here's what I will say. One of the things I look at in the book briefly and, and sort of, you know, reasons to be cheerful, should we say, or reason at least not to be quite so glum as we might be is we have been in situations like this before. We've been in situations where there has been a widespread gulf between the leadership and 
people many times, you know, and hyper-partisanship and polarization. In America's great, great genius of America is that it goes through these extraordinary periods of turbulence and turmoil and tumult and is somehow able to kind of repair itself and correct itself. I think about the 1960s, you know, the 1960s was an era of extraordinary social change, much of it for the good, civil rights movement, clearly. But it clearly also alienated huge numbers of people. By the end of the 60s, you know, you had a large number of people who felt that the ideals of the civil rights movement had gone too far, that the country was dominated by these progressive elites, you know, who hated America, who were against the war, who thought America was the bad guy in the world, who thought that, you know, the country was fundamentally, you know, flawed and racist and all this kind of stuff. But that's not dissimilar from where we are now. And then Richard Nixon came in in 68 with his silent majority and won. And then, of course, won a huge majority four years later in 72. Now, on the subject of trust, of course, he then forfeited that trust very shortly afterwards. But I kind of do feel, and it's sort of back to the point you made about Ronald Reagan too, I, I sort of feel that period, it took a long time to correct that period. I mean, remember, by the way, when I always say to people when they worry about how bad things are in America, they think about 1968. You had hundreds of Americans dying every week in a war. 150 a week. Yeah, domestic terrorism on a huge scale. You had political violence, assassinations of and attempted assassinations of major political figures. You had tumult in politics. You know, again, Riot, riots in major cities. You had yeah, yeah. Uh, murder of, of uh, individuals in, uh, at Kent State, yeah. uh, shootings of students. Yeah, no, we didn't repair that overnight. It took, again, uh, Nixon was elected in 68, re-elected 72, then we had the trauma of Watergate. We had the, the sort of the additional trauma of Jimmy Carter. By 1980, we had been able to come to a position where we were able to elect a leader who could bring the country together. You know, not initially. Reagan was a very divisive figure, of course, in the early stages. But through pursuing the right policies, through success, through achieving the things that you know, we've just talked about, so have not been achieved, whether on the foreign policy front or in terms of economics. Though there is reason for hope. It's not going to end tomorrow, and God help us, 2024 is going to be. <laughs> one hell of a one hell of a show but i am optimistic fundamentally i think you know this country's done it before and i think it'll do it again i should say the kent state was after 1960 i think it was early 70s yeah well jerry baker gerard baker and his book is american breakdown why we no longer trust our leaders and institutions and how we can rebuild confidence jerry will be back in this chair next week as a host of free expression and i promise he will not be interviewing me Thank, Thank you. you all. Can for I listening. just say what an excellent podcast this is? <laughs> <laughs> Thank Thanks for listening. When it comes to building and financing stronger businesses, Apollo does the heavy lifting by providing customized capital solutions to drive innovation and growth. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com.